giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with me today is Lara Hogan, co-founder of Wherewithal. Lara, thanks for joining me. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So, Laura, I know you from your previous work in various engineering roles, some of which have been at our clients, actually, both Kickstarter and Etsy. Excellent. And the great insights you have on Twitter and the work that you've done. But what is it that you're doing at Wherewithal now? Yeah, it's basically the best job that I've ever had that I didn't know was possible (laughs) until (laughs) I started doing it. So it's like if you took just my favorite parts of my jobs as VP of engineering at Kickstarter or, you know, engineering director at Etsy and did just my most favorite parts and nothing else. So like meeting one-on-one with managers and supporting them as they grow and learn, you know, helping emerging leaders find new opportunities and like stretching and growing their skills that way, training managers, leaders, you know, people who have to interact with other humans, often at tech companies, but also sometimes not at tech companies, just learn how to be better humans to each other. It's like just that stuff, you know, at those roles, it was totally fine to like develop strategy and like give technical contributions and stuff. And, you know, mm-hmm. it was definitely a, a huge aspect of it that was necessary. But now my job is just to do the subset of things that is effectively management. And it's a dream. So I want to dig into that a little bit. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but why is it a dream for you? I always feel like a total weirdo when I talk about this because, you know, I spend so much of my time talking to managers about what they're wrestling with and how, how strange of a role management is from everything that people were doing before. And I feel like there's only, you know, one in a million uh, that I get to meet who feels similarly, which is just like management just feels natural and fulfilling mm-hmm. and not, I mean, it's stressful, but it's not any more stressful than other kinds of IC individual contributor leadership roles. So mm-hmm. for me, you know, I've always been a, someone who thinks about the different skill sets and experiences that people bring together to ship stuff. You know, like you need a balance of skills and strengths and weaknesses and temperaments. And, you know, it, that, that stuff has always been really a joy for me to think about and to build I don't know. There's just something so interesting about it to me and and always has been. So you want to do something unique and lots of people can build an architect engineering systems, like, (laughs) but you think that it's relatively unique to enjoy the management of people and, and you have something to contribute that's relatively unique there. Yeah. I'll say instead of unique, I'll say unusual because it makes it feel like it's special. I don't think it's special. I think it's like just very strange (laughs) because it just doesn't happen that often. Okay. So let's keep on taking a step back then. In your role, when you were responsible for being VP of engineering or engineering director, and then you were balancing the other aspects of managing people. Yeah. Did you find that to be a struggle to give both the amount of attention that they required? It's really interesting to think about the different like the waves of those things. Because you know, mm-hmm. you'll have an annual review cycle. And then you'll have a road mapping cycle and then you'll have like an execution cycle somewhere in between or overlapping with those. And at each of those stages of my organization as a leader meant I was spending my time and focus doing different things. And, and sometimes they blended really well together. I would wear my strategic thinking hat in one meeting and then I would wear my coaching and mentoring hat you know, in a one-on-one right after. Sometimes those were really low stress kind of transitions and context switching. Other times it was so painful. You know, I would need to spend so much of my brain 
thinking about strategic planning and what we needed to do for the future and making architecture decisions, especially as an engineering director at Etsy, I ran a a group called Product Infrastructure. And so we were responsible for helping to make sure that everything that product development needed in order to build stuff for our users, they had. So tooling and and, all the rest of the platform stuff. And so in the seasons when I just needed to spend all of my brain power thinking about that, it was much harder to be able to context switch into one-on-one support systems or thinking about the kind of learning and development that the emerging leaders on my organization needed and how I could support them in that. So it was more about the context switching that was hard. There were certainly times when like it all worked really well together and I could do that split of brain stuff. But if I were to like rank my enjoyment of the two mm-hmm. far and away, even when horrible awful things were happening. (laughs) The the people-related stuff, you know, supporting people through times of crisis, that ended up being much more fulfilling work throughout. Well, and I think being fulfilled in our work is really Mm. important. Like, life is too short to be unfulfilled in your work. Yeah. And, you know, you're pretty good at what you do, right? And so (laughs) you have lots of options. I think that's that's true across the board in the tech industry is like, there's so many opportunities for people. So why spend your time doing things that aren't fulfilling? You know, and there was a study that came out a number of years ago. I wonder if they've done any updates to it. But a number of years ago, the study came out about women in STEM fields. And it found... I'm going to hand wave about this. I haven't looked at it recently, Mm -hmm. but it effectively found that women in STEM fields typically performed equally well in like math and sciences stuff as they did at like written and verbal stuff. So often women in STEM fields have a choice of a variety of jobs, Mm -hmm. which in the study, it it didn't find that that men had the same kind of like equal aptitudes in all of those areas. So like my degrees in philosophy you know, the spectrum of like writing and speaking and problem solving in that way has opened up a huge set of opportunities for me in my work life, which I feel very, very fortunate to have. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you opened up the door, but I'm not sure how far into the room we want to go, which is (laughs) one one of my concerns is that as we focus on these things more and men get put in a position where they're allowed to abdicate the responsibility for healthy teams to the people who are better at it. Quote unquote, quote unquote, quote unquote, right, unquote yes, better right. at it. <laughs> Have been socialized to sit right. in those seats. Yeah, totally. So I'm not even sure how to, how to tackle it, but it's one of the concerns that I have. And yeah. I think it's unacceptable mm-hmm. to do that, but I sort of can see it happening. Yeah. To anybody out there who's thinking about this and wrestling with this exact topic, I will always recommend starting with questions and not starting with assignments. And the questions mm-hmm. need to be genuinely open questions. What skill sets do you want to grow in the next six months? What experiences do you want to acquire in the next six months? What kinds of leaders do you admire? And what about them do you want to emulate? Like those are good open coaching questions that I think if leaders who are thinking, who are looking around them and saying, who on my team can I put into a management role <laughs> mm-hmm. to prevent yourself from like falling into that trap of assigning it to the people who appear to have a, more of an aptitude from, for it, experiment with some what powerful open questions to see if you can sniff out whether or not they might be aligned to that kind of work rather than just saying like, hey, you seem like you're good at this thing. Because no matter what, by the way, like this is true for no matter your your gender, just because you're good at a thing doesn't mean you want to do it. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I'm, I'm hopeful that those powerful open questions will be helpful no matter whom you're talking to. And one of the things that I've always felt, and I think it's becoming hopefully a little bit more generally accepted, is that the actual, you know, writing code part of our jobs 
is just one piece and mm -hmm. probably not even the most important piece of what makes someone a great developer, right? efficient developer. It's being able to communicate effectively, to be yeah. part of a team, a good member of a team that has empathy for your coworkers and your stakeholders yeah. and can negotiate that and to can communicate. And, you know, that applies for ThoughtBot because we're consultants. So it's very obvious that needs to be part of our skill set. Yeah. But I think it's true for everyone in an engineering role. And I think it can be difficult for people to accept that, I think. Yeah. Is that old, um, you know, John Osbaugh wrote that post a million years ago on being a senior engineer that's still mm -hmm. so relevant today. Because, yeah, on being a senior engineer, being a senior engineer is not just having like a technical aptitude, right? It's about so many other skills. So in your work now, are you very far away from the code? <laughs> yeah. yeah, the closest I get to it is like, um, looking Are you up maintaining liquid. the wherewithal website? I am. Yeah, because I was going to okay, say, so you know, there, it's like it's like looking go. up liquid Jekyll mm -hmm. <laughs> language for my yeah. static GitHub pages site. Yeah, my husband is a is an engineer, and he's actually also an extremely good teacher, which means I can always be like, "Hey, <laughs> I got this very strange programming question. Can I show you what I'm working <laughs> on?" When we first met, we were at Etsy, and he. Uh, he was on the developer tooling team, which meant even before we started dating, he could always help me with my very, very broken VM because as a manager, <laughs> I never <laughs> kept it up to date. <laughs> my favorite thing is because I do still contribute to projects every once in a while. And so you know that you're not doing it often enough when every time you turn your attention to a project, you need to upgrade Ruby. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, totally. These days, I just hand my computer to Ben and I'm like, please, <laughs> I can't, right. I don't want to. <laughs> so one of the things that I struggle with and that at ThoughtBot, we do try to do a little differently. And I think it is a little bit skewed because we are a consulting company where that we don't want the very best designers and developers to have to give up doing design and development in order to become part of the leadership and management of our team. Yeah. And I think that is fairly unique because our business is consulting, you know, doing design and development. Right. But I see other companies and that there is essentially two tracks and that in order to move up in the managerial track, in, yeah. in the leadership track, you need to stop doing design and development. I also see some companies that their leaders or their managers, they actually are not designers or developers, and they sort of believe in that, that the people managers shouldn't be designers or developers. They should be people who are expert people managers. In your experience, what do you think the right balance is, or is it different <laughs> for every organization? Oh, this is such a complex question, not just because it's like a, I mean, obviously, there's not like a binary answer here, but right. more because management is like, it's a whole other discipline. And right. it's important to like think of it that way. It's like an add-on. It's not like a replacement for individual contributing work. When I think about really strong managers, it's almost like a completely orthogonal skill set, right? It's like these people are strong managers, not because they have an aptitude for programming, for example. And it's not because they don't have an aptitude for programming. It's purely because they think about organizational systems, and the way people mm -hmm. communicate. And like it's again, it's not like an either or situation. It's like this is a whole different subset. I personally have seen it work so many different ways well. And there's never been like one true path. Some organizations mm -hmm. are really good at permitting managers to kind of find their own balance. 
of technical contributions or design contributions and management stuff. But in those organizations, it, it also has to be really clear, actually in any organization, it should be really clear what's required of you as a manager. Like this only works if it's really clear what management is about, what skill sets you're expected to be using and like what success looks like. Mm-hmm. Without that, I think anybody's going to have a hard time juggling different kinds of skill sets that, you, that they're using every day because how are you supposed to know what's right? Have you seen any organizations that successfully have like a completely separate manager function where the people are not technical and have never been technical and they only focus on managing people? Yeah, I don't think I've ever worked in an organization where that was true. Mm -hmm. You know, as you grow more and more senior, obviously, you're going to necessarily need to manage people who have very, very different backgrounds, Mm -hmm. especially like at a CEO level, right? Like you're going to be managing people who do not have the same previous individual contributor skill sets as you do. So that's like an always going to be true. I mean, even on the on the line manager level, I don't know. It's a really hard question to answer. And I don't think I've ever worked at a company where that was happening to assess it or not. Now we're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Pricing Wire. Think about all the time, effort, uncertainty, and everything else that you're investing into what you're building. Pricing Wire has helped more than 1,000 software and technology innovators like you take a proactive approach to both discover and get paid what they're truly worth. From early startups to Fortune 500 enterprises, across verticals and around the globe, PricingWire delivers easy-to-understand and actionable recommendations to guide your monetization and pricing strategy. If you want to avoid unnecessary challenges or regrets and prevent missing time-sensitive revenue opportunities, PricingWire can help. Just go to PricingWire.com and book a strategy session today. Whether you need to organize your value into offerings, quantify and message your value, select the right pricing metrics, set and change prices, or even decide if usage-based pricing is best for you, PricingWire will help you achieve your revenue goals faster and with more confidence. Learn more at pricingwire.com and start making meaningful progress today. So it sounds like that you didn't really have a resistance internally to <laughs> of yourself to giving up the technical aspects of what you were spending your day-to-day on. No, that's correct. And I think a lot of that's because I was doing web performance work. I found it incredibly satisfying to basically be cleaning stuff up and making mm-hmm. it faster, which is effectively like an efficiency dopamine drip. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. And like I can get that anywhere whether it's doing more performance speed up work um, on anything, including a personal site, or whether it's finding the most efficient route to run all my errands in the day. Like there's, there's something very, very satisfying about that kind of work. Yeah. And so I, I haven't found myself missing it, I think, because that particular thing I was doing and the stuff I was getting out of it is kind of easy to find everywhere. Are most of the people that you work with engineering managers or are they in a variety of different disciplines? These days, usually my first intro to a company comes from the VPE or the CTO or an engineering manager. Mm-hmm. I think because I was in that world for so long and that's kind of how they knew me. They, you know, it's me speak at a conference about web performance or maybe they read the book or, or something else. So usually that's my initial introduction. Once I am working with that organization, often the lines become much fuzzier. Mm-hmm. There was an organization I worked with in February. I was being hired to come in and run effectively manager training for all of their engineering managers. And then I got to talk to the head of HR and she ended up turning the training into being for all of their like North American managers, you know, cross to cross functional managers. And that was wonderful because mm-hmm. I, I, this stuff I think is so important. The training specifically is so important to do cross functionally that we build these networks and you develop some more empathy between functions and there's just so much goodness. So I find myself often at the end working with everybody, but often my first introduction is the engineering department. 
So where do you find that you're having the most impact in the trainings that you give? Oh, man. Every group is different. So, you know, I have like little feedback forms at the end and, and I always mm-hmm. ask for like, what's what's your takeaway? Like, what's your one big thing you're going to remember or you're excited to, to try out? And every group is a little bit different. The, the most common themes I see, feedback is almost always a big one. Mm-hmm. In many of my workshops, I walk folks through what good effective feedback looks like and really push people to reframe it in a way that's going to land with the feedback recipient rather than just thinking about why this feedback is important to you, the feedback giver. So there's often some, something in there. Also, I make them role play giving the feedback to each other, and that's a treat for everybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the other big one I often see is the difference between mentoring, which is advice giving, you know, perspective sharing, and coaching, which is much more about helping the person you're talking to introspect and dig deep and explore the shape of the thing that they're wrestling with rather than just focusing on the problem and the solution. And I really, in that part of the workshop, especially I push people out of the advice giving mode, which is very, very hard for most people to switch into much more of a coaching mode. And that's the other one big one that I find resonates with folks and I I get a lot of feedback on. Do you think that most managers should have a coaching approach? So often I do an, like an icebreaker in, in the beginning of my workshops. And the one that I've been pulling out recently is uh, what's one thing that a manager has done for you that skyrocketed your growth? And so we'll go around the room and everybody's introducing themselves and sharing what's the one thing. I would say seven times out of 10, the things that people say are about sponsorship. So sponsorship is feeling on the hook to give someone a leadership opportunity, a growth opportunity, so that they can learn and, and you trust them. And it's a, like a stretchy thing that helps them grow. So sponsorship is, is often what I hear people say. So, you know, my manager delegated this huge task to me and believed that I could do mm-hmm. it, even though I didn't know how, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Seven times out of 10, I hear That's that. what mine is. I yeah, haven't right? had too many managers in my career, <laughs> but the one that stands out to me, that that is what it is. Yeah. So sponsorship is something that no one talks about, which blows my mind, because it's the thing that actually is correlated to career trajectory. Most Mm -hmm. people, when we say like, hey, you know, what kind of help do you need? People say, I I need a mentor. Mentorship is handy and that's, you know, advice giving. It'll it'll unblock you. But only one times out of 10 do I hear someone say, oh, yeah, I had this mentor, this guy worked on my growth. Because it's just Mm -hmm. like you're given the answers. You don't get to connect your own dots. You know, it's not actually about stretching. It's just... They're unblocking you, which is helpful, but not what helps you grow. Coaching is the other one that you hear maybe two times out of 10. But this is the one that almost no managers default to. Some managers think about sponsorship, like how can I be giving people opportunities? And But most managers who I coach or that I meet in these workshops are defaulting to mentorship mode. And that is just such a bummer. I mean, and I get it, right? Like it feels really good to be a mentor. It feels really good to like feel like you're helping mm-hmm. someone and sharing your perspective and sharing what you've seen work and not work. But that's just about you, my friend. <laughs> that's not about this other person. That's right. not helping them grow. So coaching mode is something I wish managers did significantly more of. It's not going to work in every circumstance. It's not the right tool for every single job. Mentoring might be, sponsoring probably is too, but coaching is the one I wish people would practice more. So how do people practice it? Yeah, the the two tools I walk through in this workshop, oh, I love it. I'm just... It's so uncomfortable. You have to give away all your secrets. No, it's so good. No, it's so good. I'm grinning because just... I'm so filled with joy whenever I watch people start to wrestle with how hard this is. Mm -hmm. Just very, very fulfilling for me. Uh, The two parts is open questions. So, you know, questions that can't be answered in yes or no. And the most powerful questions you heard me mention a few at the beginning of this podcast start with the word what, because why questions, you know, they can like make us feel a little bit judged and we Mm -hmm. don't want to do that. And how questions get much too much into like problem solving mode, but what questions, you know, what's important about this, what's scary about this, 
the one I used earlier, what's what's a leader that you want to emulate? What about them? Do you want to emulate? Those are really powerful. They, they force someone to sit back and go, huh? Yeah. Which is uncomfortable. And that's mm-hmm. kind of the point. We want to like root around. So that's, that's one tool. And then the other tool I talk through in these workshops is the act of reflecting or reflections. So the idea that you're like holding up a mirror for this other person and you're helping them introspect or process by looking into that mirror. So you might do the reflecting by saying like, here's what I'm hearing you say. You know, is that right? And saying, saying something back to them in your own words. You might say, here's what I know to be true about you. You know, you're really strong. You've been through these kinds of things before. You're incredibly introspective, whatever's true. Or you could encourage them to look into the mirror. You know, how does this map back to your goals? Or what's what's true for you today that wasn't true for you a year ago? Both of these tools, so the open question tool and the reflecting tool are, are two big components of coaching. And as you can tell, it's not about the coach, right? You're just like a vessel. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's like holding up this mirror or asking them questions and the person you're coaching is doing all of the work. You mentioned role playing. That, yeah. That's something that you do in your thing. I think I think people underappreciate how little practice we get yeah. in these roles. And so role playing is one way to do that. It's also fun in, it can in be. general. Yes. Yeah. Have you used it? Yeah. So Thoughtbot's a little bit different in that we as designers and developers not only do management, but we don't have a sales team. So we're also mm-hmm. the ones having the sales conversation. So we've used role playing most often in the sales trainings that we've done cool. as a way to practice that. But having done that, it really occurred to me, oh, there's so many other things we don't get a chance to practice. Mm-hmm. So role-playing can be an effective way to do that. Oh, totally. The first time I saw it, I was at Etsy and the head of learning and development, her name was Paloma Medina. Paloma organized you know, two weeks before annual reviews, this like role-play feedback session where she picked, I think it was three different pairs of people to role-play where one would pretend to be a manager and one would pretend to be their direct report. She gave them like little prompts, you know, like what was their scene about? And they would just kind of role-play a very difficult feedback conversation. Like someone, like one person thought that they deserved a promotion and a raise. And then the manager needed to push back and say why that wasn't true. And so she structured it so that all the other managers could attend and watch to see how these folks practiced um, Mm -hmm. and like what tools they used and how did they create silence. And she didn't say any of this. It was just like, cool, come and watch and learn, you know. And it was incredible because even when it got messy or awkward or just like started deteriorating, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you still were learning so much by watching these folks wrestle with this because even though it was fake, you know, it was it was still so interesting. So I've adopted this, not just in my workshops, but also in the workplace. Like this is something I brought to Kickstarter where we would have manager meetings, we would have fake dilemmas, and we would all practice, including me, you know, so they could see other ways of modeling how to have difficult conversations. And there was so much, not just in the act of practicing it, but in the act of like watching other people and how they approach the same tricky conversations, practice it. Before I started doing this, I had the opinion that it was going to be corny. Yeah. That it, it's going to be not genuine. It wasn't going to be useful. But in all my experience, and maybe it's just because I've been part of good groups doing it, but if everyone <laughs> really is genuinely interested in improving yeah. and that it becomes very genuine, it's just not corny at all. Right. And everyone really gets a lot out of it in a way that I didn't anticipate before I was actually doing it. Yeah. And the other really fun part about it that I've seen is within every organization, there's some really good actors. 
So like <laughs> they're there and they're, <laughs> I often have people during the workshops raise their hands, you know, who enjoyed pretending to be the recipient of this feedback. And you'll, I'll get some hands and say like, keep them up. Hey, everybody look around. Next time you need to practice some feedback, find these people. They are so ready to help you practice this feedback. Because I think we often worry about burdening other people with our needing to practice or hone our skills or whatever else. And like, they're amongst us. They're ready to go. So you've mentioned an annual review, the concept <laughs> of one, a yeah. few times. Do you think that annual reviews are effective? <laughs> That was one of the most loaded questions you've asked so far. <laughs> no, I think I have to say no, um, but no, truly no. It's funny. I had the privilege of working with someone named Morgan Evans. She now consults and does really incredible work helping organizations create new feedback systems based on organizational structure and, and what they need and what they need to, what kind of data they need to get out of it, those kinds of things. I've seen the gamut of feedback systems and patterns and tools and... Oh, there's just so much out there. It's funny because feedback is something that we need to do so often and we, we usually right. do so terribly. And I, I feel like most of the reasons why we do it terribly is we're just avoiding the necessary awkwardness and pain of something that is honestly, if we could just do it more, it would unlock so much more in our coworkers and ourselves. So one of the issues with annual is that it's not often enough. No. And even in the annual reviews, like, Okay, let's say you do it annually and that works well. What's the structure like? How are people able to give feedback transparently and form it well? And are you equipping your managers to take third-party feedback and discard what's irrelevant and like biased, right? Mm -hmm. And like turn it into something that's actionable and specific. Like there's so many aspects to the stereotypical annual review cycle that are just plain old broken. So if you were designing an organization from the ground up, what would you do what, if you could snap your fingers and have a feedback system that's working well and everything like what are the core tenets of what that would be and what the cadence would be? I'm not sure about cadence. You should definitely mm -hmm. have Morgan on your show to talk about okay. feedback systems because yeah. she'll mm -hmm. have a much more educated answer than I will about cadence. But in terms of like building into your company culture, she'll have good thoughts on that too. But, but my two cents include the fact that, you know, we really should be better at structuring feedback so that it's formed in a way that your recipient's going to care about. Because let's say I'm annoyed by something that my coworker is doing. If I give them feedback about that thing, how do I know they're going to care about it? How do I know that they're going to change that behavior? How do I know that they are going to be like incentivized to even listen to me? And so I think that we need to do more education internally, whether that's workshops, like I'm super happy to come and talk to your folks about it, or, or there's just normal modeling, you know, by managers and leaders about what good feedback looks like and transforming it into something that the recipient will care about. There will obviously be times when the recipient doesn't care and you need to give them the feedback anyway. But putting in the extra effort to make this person feel seen and heard and acknowledged and understood as you're giving them feedback like that, it just changes the game as far as what I've seen. So out there, you're working with lots of different kinds of companies to help solve these challenges. And you're also writing. Yes. It's the best, so, best job in the world. <laughs> well, I was going to say, do you enjoy writing? I really do. I really do. And this is... It's this good because you're, you're doing it. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> I got to thank my philosophy. Actually, I had to thank my parents for letting me get a philosophy undergraduate degree, <laughs> for permitting me to have it. Yeah, that philosophy degree, I mean, when you think about it, it was like, you know, writing long papers every single week and you had to come up with an argument a thesis statement, you know, you had to defend it and support it well. You had to be really succinct. That's the other thing that I've noticed really translates to writing for engineering books or blogs or anything else. Like you got to be super succinct and, and defend your argument successfully. Um, and my philosophy degree absolutely helped me do that. But yeah, it's it's so much fun. 
So what's the latest thing that you're working on? Yeah, it's so close to being done. So close to being done. Pre-orders will go live in May and it'll be able to be purchased in June. And it's called Resilient Management and it's being published with A Book Apart. I think A Book Apart is a great publisher. Yeah. So how did you arrive at the you know ideas in it? Honestly, I arrived at it through many, many, many one-on-ones. And when I say one-on-ones, I mean not just like when I was working full-time as an engineering manager, engineering leader, but also in my coaching sessions. The stuff that I cover in this book really is like, what are the most common topics that I find myself coaching someone on or giving advice on? Because so often in these coaching sessions, we got to start with some fundamentals before we can really dig into coaching mode. So, you know, what's a fundamental framework for feedback or what's a fundamental framework, say for, again, the, the mentoring versus coaching versus sponsoring. And so the book covers all of like the fundamental skill sets that you need to be resilient in this otherwise can be pretty stressful work. There's obviously so many other skill sets to do with strategy and execution and product development processes that are out there that managers also need. I really wanted to just focus on like the, I'm going to say 50% of manager skills that have to do with managing these totally different than you humans and helping them to be resilient through all the organizational change that our companies so often go through. Is resiliency important because otherwise you burn out? (laughs) Sorry, this is again a loaded question. Um, Yeah, I was, yes. The answer is yes. Well, it's sort of like, you know, have you ever watched Inside the Actor's Studio? Yes. Right? Like every question that he asks is a leading question, right? Absolutely. I want you to take my coaching course to help transform these into powerful open questions. No, I'm teasing. Um, So what about resilience important? So when I think about the startups that I've worked in or the investor-funded organizations I've worked in or or whatever, like changes are only constant, right? Like change is going to happen all the time, whether it's change to the business model or change to the primary product offering that we've got or change to the landscape of technology around us. Like no matter what, stuff is changing, whether that's a reorg or whether that's something out in the ether. And resiliency, I found, came up so much in my conversations with managers because the questions I get all the time are like, how do you handle how tired you are at the end of the day? Or like, how do you even feel the kind of success that you felt when you were shipping before? Because like, you might still be shipping a little bit, but if your day is full of one-on-ones, you're not going to feel that dopamine drip of like little wins. It's like, how do you just survive that? And then obviously in our changing landscape of technology, but also we're in America, there's a whole lot of change happening outside our doors. How do we help our teammates remain resilient when there's like basically a tire fire happening all around us all the mm-hmm. time. So again, there's some foundational skills in there uh, that I, I mentioned before, but also there's just like the, how do you, how do you weather those organizational storms? The fact that you mentioned people are tired, yeah. it, it jumps out at me. Like, is that common? Yeah, it's so common. Why is that? And why is that okay? I don't think it's okay. Okay. But I do think it's common. Mm-hmm. Again, there's this tire fire around us right now. Right. How can you not be tired when everything is exhausting? Everything is just punching in the face constantly with some pretty visceral pain and suffering. Mm-hmm. And again, not just within our organizations, but outside of them too. So when I think about tiredness and managers, and it's not the the extra stuff, it's not the extra set of emotions and, and, and challenges and difficulties, when it's just like the day-to-day tiredness, I usually see it coming from either lots and lots of context switching. So 
also, you know, someone's going from that strategic thinking meeting into a one-on-one and that's really a hard switch for your brain. Or it's because they're just back to back to back one-on-ones, which frankly Mm -hmm. are incredibly draining. Even though they're wonderful, even though they're my favorite thing in the entire world, I know I can't successfully do more than four coaching sessions in a day because I am beat at the end of them. Even if they're the happiest one-on-ones imaginable, Mm -hmm. I'm usually still exhausted. Um, So yeah, it's either the context switching or it's like lots and lots and lots of one-on-ones that I see contribute to most managers' just baseline tiredness. What do you think the right number of direct reports is in general? <laughs> there must be studies on this, right? Like, I haven't looked at those. There must be. But, like, I want to believe, up, yeah. yeah. Six is, like, an ideal max, I think, mm-hmm. for me personally. You know what? I'm going to say, this is just for me. I've met other managers who are really good at having many more than that. Just the way that they think and the way that they operate and what they want to be leaned on for. You know, like, with the kind mm-hmm. of things that they provide to their direct reports, they can do a lot more. And also, I've met managers who are much more successful at having fewer. Mm-hmm. It's not one size fits all, but for me... I think for like six is probably my max. You? <laughs> so I think it's probably six, but you don't want to know how many direct reports I have. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that is challenging for ThoughtBot, but also just in general, the kind of company we are, is we're not so huge that we could maintain that ratio. Yeah. So we have six studios. So right out of the gate, each studio has a managing director that reports to me. And it's really important. We found that I work directly with the managing director of the studio. Mm-hmm. So that puts me at six right yeah. away. So then I have the rest of the C-level team that also needs to report to the CEO. And to fix that problem, we would need to insert someone in between myself and the managing directors. And right now we're just not big enough to warrant that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what do you find that most folks lean on you for? Is it like, again, mentoring, coaching? Is it like strategic thinking, something else? Inspiration. Yeah, that that (laughs) totally checks out, right? CEO. You're like, you're sitting the North Star. Right. And staying positive and Mm -hmm. being able to see the bigger picture. That's important. And the managing director in a lot of ways is essentially doing the CEO duties for that studio Mm -hmm. of ThoughtBot. And so coaching them through what's involved in that yeah. is a big part of what people look to me for. Of the C-level team, it's more like what I would point to as like just operational management. Mm-hmm. Like we are a team and we're working together to accomplish tasks for the company. And so what they're looking to me for is much more tactical. And of those two, so the North Star versus the tactical, does one mm-hmm. drain your energy more than the other? You may not be able to answer it on the podcast. (laughs) Mm, No, I think I'm generally pretty open, but I think that I've also talked about this before, that what drains me the most is saying the same thing over and over and over again. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And so with the studio managing directors, it's not always the case, but it's more often than not that that will happen with them because they'll be facing the same issues or will be talking about something at the company level that is applicable to all of them. But I'm in the one-on-one with them, but I'm doing it with six people. And so I'm saying the same thing over and over again. Yeah, sure. I think that is the most draining thing for me. That's not the same thing as the most frustrating. Right. The most frustrating thing for me as a leader or manager or as a CEO is having something really terrible happen. And then for whatever reason, confidentiality, 
just needing to put a good face on things or whatever, I need to immediately go into another meeting and pretend like everything's okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's a whole subset of skills. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it could be any variety of things. It's just where where things are not okay. Yeah. And that could be with an individual or someone's leaving or something like that. And then to need to go into another meeting where that information hasn't been made public yet and you need to deal with that. Yeah. That's hard. That's not just limited to CEOs. No, I think you're describing something that like at any level, a manager might be punched in the face right. with those kinds of emotions and need to compartmentalize, mm-hmm. you know, right. before going to the rest of their day. Yeah, it's a huge struggle. Thank goodness there's a book called Resilient Management that's <laughs> Thank coming goodness. out. No, I'm sorry. Yeah. It's not going to solve no. all those problems. I'm so sorry, but I'm hopeful it can give some tactics to, again, weathering those storms. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's not that it's easy, right? but I do think that I have more resiliency than other people. The fact that I've been able to do this for 15 years is one indicator of that. And I'm sure over that time, you've built up a network of support for yourself. Yeah. Yeah, I have, but I'm sort of a loner. (laughs) My network of support these days tends to be other people in similar positions because we can sort of, I think this is a common thing that CEOs talk about is like, they can't talk to anybody else at their company about when these things happen because they need to be seen as the one who's, you know, steadfast or not questioning. But oftentimes that's not necessarily true and showing some vulnerability would be good for people. Sure. But I think there are some things you just can't, as CEO, you can't say to members of your team. Yeah, yeah. And so it it is useful to have other CEOs. So I have someone that I get lunch with every other week who's the CEO of another company here in Boston. And I have a group of other people that I belong to and we get together two times a year and help each other. That's so nice. Yeah. And I'm in Slack with them and that kind of thing (laughs) as well. Yeah, those groups I didn't realize existed until I became a VP of engineering and realized how many of those small to medium-sized groups there are of just like, hey, we just need some buddies sometimes to either process or unload or something else. It's really invaluable. Yeah, I think unloading is, uh, but also processing. You need sort of a place where you can put out your crazy ideas Mm -hmm. and get feedback on them with the people who aren't going to freak out when they hear them. Yeah, precisely. (laughs) And often people on your company are going to freak out because they're often big, challenging things and people aren't necessarily ready to deal with them. Something I've talked about for a long time is this concept of a manager Voltron. <laughs> so the idea, do you, yeah. actually, can you, for your listeners, can you share, if you're comfortable, what a Voltron is? <laughs> Define well, Voltron. Well, Voltron is from the cartoon show that I grew up on, mm-hmm. where you have a series of smaller robots uh-huh. that <laughs> activate and assemble into a large, very large, yeah. single robot. Voltron. That, yeah. Voltron, yeah. Beautiful. I have been really enjoying asking other people to define it because you can always do it much more succinctly than I can. Yeah. So the idea, you know, that you have like, instead of one manager that you lean on for support, especially as a C-level executive, you often don't have a manager, a real manager to lean on for support. 
to instead as like assemble a crew of people that like each individual person can come together as like a thing that you need from a manager. Maybe that's processing time. Maybe that's venting space. Maybe that's advice. And I recommend to people that as they think about assembling their Voltron, that they don't all have to meet together. It can be like still one-on-ones, but you know, the mental model of a Voltron, I think is useful. Find people who are different than you are. Find people who have much more experience than you do. Maybe find people who have experience in a different industry, you know, like one of the very best mentors I have is a CFO and, you know, I've never worked in finance, but it's been really helpful to lean on her for a number of different kinds of problems or questions. And it sounds like you've assembled your own Voltron of folks to lean on. Yeah. So Laura, if people want to get in touch with you or, you know, work with you or follow along and find out more about when your book comes out, where's all the places that they can do that? I think far and away, the best place is going to be Twitter. You can find me at Lara, L-A-R-A, underscore Hogan on Twitter. Wonderful. You can subscribe to the show and find that link and other notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at cpytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. And thanks again to Pricing Wire for sponsoring this episode of Giant Robots. Thanks for listening and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.